Summer brings all kinds of uh, new uh, things, times for rest and relaxation. So I was camping all week. And so I said, if I camp all week, I wonder if I can get my friend uh, to come and bring the word for us this morning. And she said, yes. Uh, so I get to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Michelle Vandesteg. I call her Moosh. Um, I don't know when we started calling her that, but it's stuck and now everybody calls her that. Um, she's been sort of all over the world, but we became friends in fourth grade because we were still um, both the girls who still wanted to wear snow pants because we still wanted to play outside instead of like the cool girls that hang out on the blacktop, just in their boots. Um, so we uh, became, we, it's true. So we became friends uh, through snow pants and we've been friends ever since. And we graduated from Unity together. Then we went on to Trinity Christian College together and we're kind of roommates. And um, she's the reason that I got a passport and have really gone anywhere. Cause Moosh always says, do you want to go? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do want to go. Um, and so uh, mom has worried about me more since I became friends with Moosh uh, than ever before because I say yes to things. Um, but she's had a story just of absolute faithfulness in the ways that she has uh, trusted God with her life, with her money, with her safety, uh, as she's been in places like Spain and Liberia and Egypt and China and North Korea. Um, yep, North Korea. I did say that. That's not a, uh, didn't mess up. Uh, and now she's back in Spain. So I just want to invite uh, her to just kind of come and, and talk to you a little bit about the neighborhood that she lives in. So will you please give a warm, a live in Granville welcome to Moosh. Thanks. I'm glad you're here. It's true. We became friends because of snow pants. I thought it'd be fun if we wore the snow pants, but Carrie has this heat issue that I don't have. But anyways, I also told Carrie, be thankful you have short hair because this mic with the hair. So I'm going to try to not touch this mic too much. But anyways, it is a pleasure for me to be here. Um, I came last Sunday as well and heard a little bit about the neighborhood and the Mr. Rogers stuff you guys are going through. And I think it's awesome. And I'm excited to share a little bit about the neighborhood that I live in because it's quite a unique little corner of the world. And I've gotten to learn a lot about living in community and reaching out to neighbors. And my neighbors are actually from around the whole world. And so that means reaching out to neighbors means cro crossing like cultural boundaries and things like that. Um, so I want to share a little bit about what, what that looks like and what it looks like to be from a kingdom culture. Um, so I live in Spain. I live on something called the Camino de Santiago. Raise your hand if you're familiar at all with the Camino de Santiago. A little bit? Okay, not very many. Great, then I get to teach you something new today. Okay, so um, we can go with the first slide. The Camino de Santiago is a 500-mile pilgrimage across northern Spain. Um, it starts on the border with France, and you can see there's actually some paths leading through France. That's because the pilgrimage comes from all over Europe, but when you hear people talk about the Camino, they're actually referring to that 500 miles that is in Spain. Um, it started back, it has a long history, you can Google it and learn all about it, but it's over a thousand years old, and it started out as a Catholic pilgrimage. Um, there's, yeah, a lot of history about it, but right now, about 300,000 people from all over the world walk at least a portion of it every year. 300,000 a year from around the world. So on my doorstep, there's literally the nations are passing 
my house every day, which is pretty cool. Um, on this Camino, there's about 450 to 500 albergues. Now, an albergue is like a hostel. A hostel is a place where you, you pay for a bunk bed in a room with other people. Um, so I have the pleasure of living in a Christian community, and we run a hostel on the Camino de Santiago. We are, um, if you look at the map, I don't know if you can see Pamplona. Pamplona is in the north. It's like an hour from the border of France. So our community, Oasis Trails, is about um, five or six days in if people start walking on the border of France. And that's a great place for us to be because at that point, people have realized, oh, this is, gonna, this is physically difficult. And they've kind of gotten into their rhythm. And when they break through the being physically difficult, it actually they enter into kind of the, the spirituality of it. And people, people who set out on this walk just as, a, oh, I'm doing this for fun or for a challenge, realize that there's actually something deeper. Um, I would say that about 50% of the people that we meet are doing it for some sort of spiritual reason. Either they're at a point in their life where they need to make a big life decision or they're... Um, something tragic has just happened and this is their way of coping with it. They want to go on a walk to clear their mind to think about it. Or they just feel like they're lacking purpose in life or they are a believer and they want to do something with Jesus. Um, I would say there's not a high percentage of people that are actually Jesus-following Christians. Um, that percentage is, is quite small. I was just telling somebody that last season we'd maybe see one or two like really serious Christians um, a week. And now we're actually starting to see them a little bit more, which has really encouraged us because we've been praying for more believers to come through because it's a great place to do ministry. Um, another unique thing about this, as Americans, when we think about going on a hike, we'll think about the Appalachian Trail, we'll think about the Pacific Coast Trail. And those things are very specific to a certain type of person. If we think about a person that does the Appalachian Trail, we think of somebody who's very fit. We think of somebody um, who loves the outdoors because you need to do that in order to walk the AT. Um, and we think of somebody, well, you've got to be in a certain economic bracket because the gear is expensive. I was at REI yesterday, it's expensive. So that's a very specific kind of person that can do those kind of walks. What I really love and appreciate about the Camino is that it's very accessible to all sorts of people. Um, there's towns that are like, you know, sometimes you only walk a mile before the next town. The longest distance you might go without a town is maybe only five miles, it's not far. So, and you're staying in hostels, you can camp, but most people stay in a hostel, so you don't have to carry a tent, you don't have to carry all this stuff. Um, and there's also companies that will take your backpack from one town to the next. So you don't have to have a certain standard of physical fitness or whatever. And there's, there's people that do it with their children and there's people that do it who are in their 80s. So you have the whole range. And, there's, and it's quite, it's not that expensive to do. Um, our hostel, you pay $10 a night to stay there. And so it's not, it can be quite a cheap family vacation if anybody is looking for that. We've seen families. Um, Anyway, so I like it that it's something that's accessible to a wide variety of people. 
So our, our, the organization I work with is called Oasis Trails. Um, we are in a small town. In that one picture, you can see the little arrow. It's a little town of about 80 people. Um, we have an albergue, a hostel, that has 25 beds. And we have a core team of, um, there's myself, two other single females, one from the Netherlands, one from Ohio. And then the Bauman family there from the Netherlands, they've got four kids. So we're the core team that lives there long-term and kind of runs the thing. And then we have volunteers that come from all over the world, um, most, mostly the Netherlands, because it started out as a Dutch foundation back in 1998. Um, so I'm used to Dutch, West Michigan Dutch culture. Multiply that by 10 and you have the Netherlands. <laughs> So I feel like I was prepped for this in my upbringing. Um, but anyways, so we have usually four to eight volunteers at a time that come from three weeks to three months. So we have, we're usually working with a team of, you know, 10 to 15 people generally. And we live together, we do life together, we run this hostel together every day, we worship together, we pray together, we meditate together. Um, so it's quite a, it's a tight community, and you're always with people. And that can be a challenge sometimes, especially when they come from a lot of different cultures. So that's something I want to talk about today. Um, so with the pilgrims that come, they show up sometime, usually around noon to 2 o'clock-ish. We open at 2, we register them, get them in. They hang out on the terrace. They do their laundry by hand and hang it up. And, and our volunteers sit out there. We chat with them, find out their story. What's great about the Camino is there's a permission to ask deep questions right away. So why are you doing the Camino? And you find out that someone just lost their job or just got divorced or just you find out deep life stuff or they aren't sure what to do with their lives. And so they thought, I'm going to walk for 30 days and hope to figure it out. Um, so you can have a five-minute conversation with somebody and maybe know more than their friends and family back home know about them. So they sit out on the terrace. We talk with them. We serve dinner every night, and they can choose to participate in that and have like a family-style dinner. And that's another thing we strongly believe in, fellowshipping around the table and cooking the best meal possible um, and showing the love of Jesus in a practical way. And a lot of other hostels, offer like fried chicken and french fries. That's kind of what they do, something quick and easy. We spend two and a half hours cooking a really good meal and they, they say, wow, this is the best meal I've had so far. I had somebody say that about one of my meals and I said, somebody came, one of our volunteers said, yeah, I, a guy at my table said, best meal he's had so far. And it was vegetarian too, yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, but he's only five days in. If he says that when he's in Santiago, then I'll take it as a compliment. She said, Michelle, he's been walking from Munich. I don't know how many miles that is, but that is a very long distance. And I was like, wow. But God uses that to catch people's attention. He uses everything that we do to catch people's attention. And, and it shows them something about us. Um, so we have dinner. It's great. And we love getting to fellowship and talk to people around the table. I'm going to be at the picnic this afternoon, so I'm looking forward to fellowship and food with you guys. Um, and then every night we have something called the Jesus meditation. 
And I know in Christian circles, sometimes the word meditation freaks us out because we think new age and we think sitting and doing this. And, but actually meditation was ours. It says in the Bible to meditate on the word day and night. And it's been stolen a little bit and turned into this new agey thing. And so we're taking it back and we're letting people know we meditate. We meditate on the words of Jesus. We meditate on what he did on the cross. We meditate on the word. Um, and so every night for half an hour, we have this really cool 400-year-old stable that we invite the pilgrims into. And it's different depending on who's leading. Sometimes it's someone gives a guided meditation of a story, um, like the prodigal son. Sometimes someone might just read from the Psalms, a few verses. And, and we let people know we're believers. This is what we're meditating on. No other spirit is welcome here except Holy Spirit. So they know that this is what we're about. And a lot of them will come to it, even though they're not a Christian. And they get touched. And it's incredible to see. And, and it, every time it surprises me, and it shouldn't anymore, but it does. Like how Holy Spirit moves and touches people. And like afterwards we served tea and one lady just started crying and she said, thank you for the tea. Like it just stirred her so much that we would serve tea. And we'll offer to pray for people and they'll start crying and they're like, I don't know how to express, but something's happening. And we're like, yeah, we know it's Jesus, you know? And they don't have the words because they don't know God. So they don't know how to express that, but he is touching them. I prayed for this Romanian girl and when I got done, she said, you put words to what's in my heart that I don't even have words for. And I said, God did, because how could I know what that, that was in your heart? God wants you to know that he sees you and he knows you and he knows what's in your heart. And so we have incredible opportunities like that every night. This guy, the picture of the older gentleman, he is 72, he's from the States, he's a retired lawyer, he has a beach house on the actual beach in Nice, France. Sounds awesome. And I thought, on paper, this guy did it. He's living the life, living the dream. But when he walked into that room, you could tell there was a weight on his shoulders and it wasn't his 20-pound backpack. You could tell something was heavy. So we had the meditation time. And afterwards, um, we have this it's 400-year-old room. And the key is about this big and it's solid metal. It's really cool. And so we pass it around as like a talking stick. And so um, people are allowed to share anything that's on their heart, if God's stirred in them during the meditation time or you know, why they're doing the Camino, whatever. And, and if they don't wanna share, they can just hold it and pass it. So it got to this guy and he held it. And I thought, okay, he's not, he's not gonna say anything. He just held it silently and he started to hand it to me. So I reached out to take it, but he didn't let go. And we sat there in this awkward moment and I was like, yeah, <laughs> what are you gonna do? And, and then he, with his head down, he goes, I don't know you, but I need to repent of my sins. And I just felt the weight of that moment. And on the one hand, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> on the other hand, I was like, wow, he's serious. Like he needs to get this load off his shoulders. And he just said, I've lived a selfish life. I've hurt so many people and I need forgiveness. And this is a journey of repentance. And I was like, wow. And we just sat there in this silence and everyone in the room was just silent. And I said, you're forgiven. 
Jesus forgave you 2,000 years ago. The people that you hurt, he can heal, you can release them. You're forgiven. And he just sat there and he let go of the key. And we just kind of rested in that for a minute. And then I shared something and we passed it on. After people started to leave the room, another a team member of ours, Jan, he came over and we started talking with this guy and it ends up he's on his fourth marriage, has three ex-wives. One of them's passed away. He's got seven kids. He was never there really to raise them. He cared about work. That was it. He was all about himself and his goals. And he said, I hurt all of them. And, and as we talked with them, he started to make a list that when he was done with the Camino, he was going to fly straight to Chicago and apologize to one of his ex-wives for something he'd done. And she said, she's going to still hate me. I said, that's okay. You just need to apologize. And we had this beautiful conversation, and you could see him change. You could see his, his, the load lift off of him. And by the end, he said, I want to come back here someday with my wife because I want her to, find, to see where I found peace. He had found peace. And that was just like, we get to be involved in those, those holy moments. There's another pilgrim. His name is Fred, and he came into the dining hall for dinner and he was quite loud, and he says, everybody, selfie, and he gets there, and they take it, and I was like, oh, here we go. We have an obnoxious American in the house. <laughs> and so I was already sitting at my table, and who sits across from me? Fred. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting dinner time. So Fred already starts, oh, what are you doing here? How long have you been here? And, you know, we get into the conversation, and, and Fred started to grow on me a little bit. And I asked Fred, hey, um, and I noticed he had on a t-shirt that said faith over fear. And I'd actually been out running that day and I had run past him. He was walking towards our village. I was running away from it. And I did a thumbs up and, and, it, and I said, hey, I saw you on the Camino. I thumbs up your shirt. And he's like, I remember you. And then when you passed, I just started going, joy, joy, joy. And I thought, hey, that was Holy Spirit speaking to both of us. So I asked Fred, why are you doing the Camino? He said, have you seen the movie The Way? There's a movie about this guy. It's not a true story, but it's a very good movie. Recommend it, The Way. And he does the Camino because his son died on the Camino. So he does it and spreads his ashes on the Camino. Fred said, did you see that movie? I said, of course I've seen the movie. And he said, well, my son committed suicide. So this was my way to, to deal with that. And to, this is my healing journey. And he said, on day one, I realized I'm healed. So now it's a joy journey that I know who Jesus is and my son knows Jesus and I'll see him again. And God just brought healing to me on the first day. I thought, that's awesome. He's like, so this is a gratitude walk. This is a joy journey. And then he puts his arm around the guy next to him, goes, this is Rudy. And I was like, hey, Rudy. Rudy is maybe in his 60s. He goes, Rudy's an atheist. <laughs> I was like, okay. And he goes, and I, Fred says, I was asking myself today, how do you walk the Camino with an atheist? That's a great question. What's the answer, Fred? Just in case I ever do. And Rudy's smiling. They're both, you know, and, but then it got quiet. And Fred, I could see the tears starting to form in Fred's eye. And he was quiet. And he was trying to, you know, his lip starts quivering. He still wants to smile and joke and laugh, but you could see something was stirring. And Rudy looks at Fred and he looks at me and says, Fred still has a lot of pain to deal with. And I knew what Fred was going to say. I knew it. And Fred said, no, man, I'm crying for you. And we just sat there. And I was like, wow, here's a guy who's lost his son. But he can still find joy in that because he knows the goodness of God. But what his heart grieves 
is someone that doesn't know Jesus. That's what should grieve our hearts. We go through trials and we go through difficult things, but we have the joy of Jesus. But what should grieve our hearts is people who don't know him. So that was, that was powerful. And I had the opportunity for a good half hour after dinner to talk with Rudy. And he, Rudy said, faith is a gift. I said, you are right. I love it when atheists preach to you. And you're like, yep. Mm-hmm. He said, faith is a gift. I said, Rudy, you know more than some Christians do right now. And uh, it's like, I just haven't received that gift. And we got to have a beautiful conversation about what it means to receive that gift. And he didn't, he didn't accept the Lord right then and there, but I know that seeds are planted and that God was already speaking to him before he even came to us. I could, I mean, I could be here for five hours and tell you guys stories like this. And um, I will be at the picnic. So if you want to hear more, I'm happy to share. But I also want to touch on what you guys have been talking about, what it means to live in community, um, what it means to live in, in the love of Christ, what it means to deny yourself. I think it's really cool that Carrie and I have been friends since fourth grade and we come back together this summer and it seems that God is speaking the same thing to both of us on different sides of the globe. Up there you see um, on the left is a brown brick house. That's where I live. It's called the guest house. And we have people that come as um, just guests and they join our community. They're not volunteers, but they just want to live in a spiritual rhythm of life with us for a couple weeks. And we can't, we have to turn people away. We can't take as many people as we'd like to. And so on the right, you see a monastery that's for sale. And we are in the process of believing God for a lot of money to buy that building and renovate it so that we can have a place where people can come and join our community. Um, Right now, I live in the guest house, the Bauman's have a house, the volunteers live in a different house. And so we want one place where we can come together, live together, and then invite more people in um, to, our, to the community, whether it's for one night, whether it's for one year. And we want it to be a place of discipleship, of worship. Um, so there, you guys can hear more about that later. We've got some videos online if you're interested in hearing about that spiritual community. But I wanna take some time and talk about community life. For us, um, one of our core passages in the Bible is John 15, abiding in the vine. What does it look like to abide? What does it look like to be as individuals united to Christ? And then how do we abide together corporately? Um, And a really good verse for when we talk about abiding together corporately is Matthew 16, 24, deny yourself. Um, Because in order to be part of one body, there's times where we are called to deny ourselves. When I think of that verse, deny yourself, pick up your cross, I think of Jesus dying for the world. And I think, wow, Jesus, that's amazing that you did that. I can't die for the whole world and save the whole world. I can deny myself, but I'm not called to save the whole world. He already did that. And so when I think about living for Jesus on a daily basis, one of my favorite stories goes like this. Deny yourself, pick up your towel and wash each other's feet. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. So in John 13, I'm going to read that story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who, was, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have, been, who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed if you do them. So what amazes me about this passage, number one, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. What a display of servanthood. I cannot imagine the creator of the universe washing my feet. But re what really blows my mind is that he washed Judas's feet. It says he knew who was going to betray him and he washed his feet. He came and humbled himself before the one who was going to betray him. Let that sink in. And then we know that the Lord's Supper comes up soon after that. And the, when he says someone's going to betray him, the disciples are like, who is it? Is it me? It's not me. Is it you? And so they don't, they don't have a clue. Sometimes we love those who have hurt us, but people know they've been hurt by that person. We'll still love them. And, but there's this little thing, you know, but the disciples didn't know it was Judas. That means Jesus treated him just like the others with the same love. And that, that's incredible to me. So when I think about in, in community, the way that we live, we want to live in such a way that the ministry part of it is, just comes naturally. If we love each other well, ministry isn't ministry anymore. People are naturally drawn into how we're living and what we're doing. And our organization has been around since 1998, but it went through a significant change last summer. Before that, it was all about ministry. Pray for the pilgrims. Do this with the pilgrims. Do that. And the pilgrims knew. They knew they were a project. We've shifted it. Love each other. Love our community. Lay down our lives for each other. Deny ourselves for each other. Put each other's interests first. Love each other with the love of Christ. And people notice. And the pilgrims ask us, are you guys family? How long have you known them? And I'm like, oh, I knew them since yesterday. They just got here. 
what? You know, they can, people know, they can tell. And so that ministry piece of it, I, I work six, hour, or six days a week and my day off, I love to be there too. And it's not work for me because I love it because I'm doing this with community people that I love because Jesus is at the core and the center of it. Ministry isn't ministry anymore when it's done in community and Jesus is in the center of it and it just comes, it's the overflow when you're loving each other with that love and Jesus is pouring into you, it just flows out of you and people get it and they see it and they want to come. People who aren't Christians want to come and join our community because, and we've seen it happen. This one guy who knew the Baumans, he came and joined the community for three months and he didn't know Jesus and he was okay with Jesus. And then he came back again and during worship one day, he just on his own said out loud, Jesus, I give you my life. And we're all like, did that just happen? And no one had to lead him through a prayer. He wasn't a project. He joined us. He joined and he was able to see Jesus in us and that drew him to Jesus. In our community, there's definitely times, especially between American and Dutch culture, where there's some of this happening. Man, I've learned that there's a form of blunt communication that just surpasses. Yeah, and... Um, there's times where I'm like, oh, I can't believe you just said that to me. And I've told my close Dutch friends there, sometimes I just have to constantly remind myself, you guys love me, you love me, you love me. Because the way they communicate is different. It's not what I'm used to. Americans, we like to coat things with, oh, thank you so much for doing that. But they don't include the thank you so much. They're like, hey, you did that wrong and you got to do it this way. And I'm like, I tried my best. <laughs> But it's just a communication style. It has nothing to do whether they love me or not, you know? But there's times, um, we have difficult pilgrims as well. And I'm sure you guys can think of somebody in your life, whether it's a believer who is close to you, whether it's someone in your family, whether it's a neighbor, or someone who's not a believer, someone you work with, whatever, who you find it difficult to love them. And you think, if I had to wash their feet, I'd rather just shove them in a pool. Like, it's not, you know, we ha there's difficult people. There's people that have really legitimately hurt us and according to the world standards, we have a right to be angry at them. We have a right to not trust them anymore. We have a right to make a nice big huge boundary line and say, you there, me here, I need to leave this. But I wanna look at this story and I wanna look at how did Jesus do that? How was he actually able to wash not just the disciples' feet, but the feet of Judas? It says in verse four, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. That verse starts out with the word so. And when we have the word so, or we have the word therefore, we know that we need to go a step back and see what happened right before that. Because it's gonna give us the reason why. Why did Jesus stand up from the meal? Why did he feel compelled to wash, start washing feet? So verse three says, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus is a fan of a three-point sermon because there's three points right there. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. One and that he had come from God, two, and that he was returning to God, three. When I find people that it's hard to love them, it's hard to serve them, it's hard to humble myself, 
I come to those three things. How often do we think of those three things? First, he knew that he had power. Matthew 28, before he gives the Great Commission, Jesus says, all power, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. So he's sending us out in his power. In Ephesians, um, Paul, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes about, it's my prayer that the eyes of your heart are opened to the hope that you have in Jesus, the glory that you have in his riches and his inheritance, and the incomparable power that's available to the us who believe. And that is the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. That's ours. We've been given that power. That's an amazing power. The power that helped Jesus to deny himself and pick up his cross. The power that the creator of the universe knew the victory that laid ahead. And so it was for that joy that he was able to suffer that shame. That same power is given to us. So when somebody hurts us, we actually have the power to look past that hurt, to deny the hurt that comes in the flesh of you hurt my feelings or you betrayed me or I can't trust you anymore. We can actually shove that aside because we have the power of Christ's love in us and we know that the victory is ours. That's awesome. How often do we think about that power in us? Every day, every moment. I wanna think about that power every single moment. Second thing, he had come from God. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says that he chose us before the creation of the world to be blameless and pure in his sight. Before the creation of the world. We can read Genesis and we read about these awesome stories. We can read about Noah. We can read about Moses and the Exodus. We can read about Abraham. We can read about all these stories. And when those were happening, Jesus knew or God knew us. We were in his mind. We were in his plan. When all of this was going on, so were we. That's amazing to think about. In Psalm 139, it talks about his thoughts about us. And those aren't thoughts that just kind of happened the day you were born. September 20, 1980, God wasn't like, oh, gotta start thinking about Michelle now and planning her life. Everything was already ordained in his book before the creation. When you think about that, that's like, oh, wow, yeah, of course I can handle this person. That's a little difficult. Because guess what? God was thinking about them too. And he loves them too. And he's been thinking about them since before the creation of the world too. How often do you think about where you've come from and life outside of your actual physical life on this earth? Do you think about how you were thought in God's mind for eternity? And then Jesus knew he was returning to God. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about all the, the troubles and the trials. And then Paul says, but we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. We, this isn't the end for us. What, what we can't see, that's what we're heading towards. And we need to fix our eyes on those things that are unseen. And when I think about the kingdom, I think about love, I think about joy, peace, patience, all the fruit of the spirit. And I, those aren't things I can touch and see and handle. 
Those are things that are in the spirit and the spirit's in me. And I know that those can come out of me. So when I, there is a person in front of me and they're testing my patience and my thought is I need more patience. And then Holy Spirit says, no, actually you have it all. You just need to use it. And I say, oh yeah, that's right. I do because Jesus is in me and I don't get part of Jesus. I get all of him. And sometimes Jesus says to me, Michelle, I'm not impatient with that person. And I think, no, you're not because you're not impatient with anybody. And I have a choice right now whether I'm going to choose to be united with Jesus and be patient or whether I'm going to choose to be united with my flesh and be ticked off and annoyed with this person. It's a choice. And the person annoying me, I can see them and I can hear them. (laughs) I can't see Jesus, but I believe and I trust he's there and that he's in me and that I have the power through the Holy Spirit to do everything that Jesus did. So I'm excited about what is unseen and I'm excited that we have an eternal destination. And so Paul, you know, he says, we're not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so especially in a context where we're working with multicultural stuff, when there is a cultural clash, we stop and say, okay, wait, what's the kingdom in this? What is, you know, time is a good one. Time's in America, you're, you're on time. And if you're Dutch, then you're 10 minutes early. And, um, but in other cultures, they run differently. Spain's a culture where you're 10, 15 minutes late, and that's totally normal. So I adjust and get used to that. And I can honestly say, when I was in college, Kira can attest, if someone was late, I was like, you don't respect me. Because time's about respect, right? In our culture, it is. In other cultures, it's not at all. And so now someone can show up 15 minutes late, and I don't even care. And I'm not thinking you don't respect me or, you know, it's like, yeah, that's normal. That's fine. Guess what? I get to be 15 minutes late too, which I need to change when I come back here. So, but we stop and we say, okay, what's, what's kingdom in this? What is Holy Spirit saying in this? How would we do this if we were in heaven? And when I think citizenship, then I also, that leads me to the language of ambassador and how, how, Paul says, you are ambassadors, we are ambassadors. And he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation. I'm gonna quick flip there. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, love that passage. We're quite familiar with the verse about how we're a new creation. Therefore, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. I love that verse. Um, He goes on to talk about the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors and though God were making his appeal through us, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When I think of an ambassador, I lived in Liberia, West Africa for a year and a half. And so when I hear the word ambassador, I think of that situation because I met people that worked at the embassy. I never met the ambassador, but I met people that worked at the embassy and I met some Marines. I lived out in the bush I wasn't there with a formal mission organization. And so my friend and I were just kind of out there. We didn't live in a gated community. We tried to be as Liberian as we could. We did have a generator for our own comfort, but, but other things like we drank well water. We didn't drink the purified water. We just wanted to live a basic, simple life with Liberians. And when I met the people that worked at the embassy, I thought, man, you're living the American life in Liberia. They lived in air-conditioned apartments, They had really nice cars. They didn't make a Liberian salary, oddly enough. They made an American salary, 
even though they were surrounded by abject poverty because they were Americans. We're from the kingdom and we're living in a world full of sin and darkness and fear and anxiety and stress and all these things now. But this isn't our world. We don't have to live like that. It'd be foolish for the ambassador to be like, you know what, just pay me a dollar a day like the Liberians. That would be foolish. They would be airlifted out of there if there was any emergency. They would have access to the best healthcare if they needed it. They would get taken to Germany if there was any you know, medical emergency. They lived with American resources in a land of poverty. We are living with kingdom resources. We are living a holy and righteous life in a dark world. We don't have to compromise that in order to reach people, in order to do our job. We don't have to compromise righteousness to be relevant. We can live that way here. So that's what I think about when I, that's my immediate thought is what's an ambassador now and, and what does that look like for the kingdom? Well, it means I have the resources of, of my kingdom where my citizenship is. I have kingdom resources for you. Buying that monastery is gonna cost a lot of money and I don't have a job. <laughs> it's gonna happen and I can't wait for that day because God's gonna do something and we're praying and he's gonna answer prayers through, through people. He's gonna make it happen. I'm 100% sure of it because we have kingdom resources. And he can move in ways that we, we can't. But I also want to take a minute to think about the context. When Paul was writing, he wasn't thinking about America and Liberia. He was thinking about an ambassador in the Roman Empire. So before Roman Empire, you've got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, right? And what they would do is they would go in and conquer a land and take the people captive and take them back to their land. But what Rome did, and it's so cool that Jesus came during the Roman Empire because Rome was different and they went and conquered a land and they left the people there and they sent their people to come and govern the land. So what does that mean for us? We're to go and govern the land. We're to go and be ambassadors of this kingdom into the land, not to just pull people, but to go into the land as ambassadors. And the ambassadors went as a representative to come with the law of Rome, with the culture of Rome, and transform that area into the culture of Rome. And we are called to come into this earth and to transform it into kingdom culture. Ambassadors also had the authority, when they went to a place, they had the authority to declare war or peace. That's awesome. We have the authority to come in and to declare war on sin to declare war on the enemy, to say, no, we're not gonna have it. This is not right and we stand against this. And at the same time, declare peace on people. We can come to somebody and we can in, in love say, hey, this isn't good that this is in your life. But then we can lay hands on them and bring the peace of the Holy Spirit. We have that authority as an ambassador being sent by Jesus saying, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. And I want to quick, one more thing I want to point out to in this and tie it back in is, is we, that verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the, the new creation has come, the old has gone and the new is here. We find comfort in that verse. We think, yes, my old self gone, new is here. And we get excited about it. But we have to remember that's not just for us. That's for the other people too we're dealing with and the difficult people too we're dealing with. A couple verses, actually one verse before that, Paul says, so... From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's a good one. And I think 
when Jesus was down on his knees in front of Judas, knowing in a few hours it was gonna be the acts of this man that leads him to the cross, I don't think he regarded him from a worldly point of view. He knew the battle that was raging and he knew that Judas was a pawn in the hands of an enemy. And I wanna know when did it become that we're allowed to be offended by people's sin? When did that happen? Because if God isn't offended by people's sin, why do we think that we can be? And when someone sins against us, why are we like, you did that to me? Instead of like, Lord Jesus, have mercy on them. They're under the influence of something that's not you. And they stumbled. And I got affected. Something happened to me, but they don't know you. Like Fred sitting there and crying for Rudy because he didn't know Jesus. How come when someone sins, even if it's against us, we think, I'm offended now. My feelings are hurt. Instead of crying out for mercy for that person because they're acting outside of the will of God. Yeah? It's a tough one. But the word says this isn't a battle of flesh and blood. There's stuff going on spiritually that we can't see. We are on the same team. And so this is true for us, how we love people outside of the church, but man, is it true for people in the church? It is so true for people in the church that we see each other not from a worldly perspective, but from a spiritual perspective. We know that we have the victory. We're on the same team. If you're playing basketball and somebody misses a shot, you don't stop and be like, you just made me lose the game now. No, you're like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Does it affect the team? It does affect the team, but you don't kick the person for it. You say, come on, let's go. Good try, do it again, let's go. You respond with encouragement, right? So when we get hurt, because guess what? We can think of the Judases in our lives. We can think of that person that hurt us and we don't wanna trust him anymore. But we're probably somebody's Judas too. That's the truth of it. We're someone's Judas. Each one of us here has hurt somebody, whether it's intentionally or not. And God's forgiven us for it. And when we can love like that, like, man, ministry is gonna be a piece of cake because people are gonna be so attracted to it. And that's why for me, it's a, I'm preaching to myself here because this is important. And it's something I'm growing in and walking in on a daily basis. And these three things, to know the power that's in me, to know where I came from, to know where I'm going. I want to think and meditate on those things every day because it will give me the power to love anybody I come into contact with. And in John 17, when Paul, or when Jesus, when he prays for the church, So he's just prayed for the disciples. And then he says, and I pray for those who are gonna know me and believe in me through their message. So he's praying for the church. And the first thing he prays for is that we may be one. Just as he and the father are one. I've never seen Jesus argue with God in the Bible. I've just seen love, no division, complete unity. Then he goes on to say, because if they're one, then the world is gonna know that you sent me. That's what's riding on this, is the world knowing that God sent Jesus. When we love each other and we come together as one, 
that's when the world is going to know. I'm excited for what you guys are doing here. And I feel when I came yesterday and I felt there's something stirring, there's something new. And I just want to encourage you, love one another, wash each other's feet, love each other when it's easy, love each other when it's difficult. The last thing I want to say is, Peter says, no, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, let me wash your feet or else you're going to have nothing to do with me. And then Peter says, well, wash everything. And, and Jesus says, you're already clean. If you know me, you love me, you're already clean. You just need your feet washed. You could sit here and think of all the ways, maybe you haven't loved somebody well, maybe you haven't this, that, and the next thing. It's okay, because you're already clean. If you believe in Jesus, you are already clean. The reason our feet need to be washed is what comes into contact with this earth the most? Our feet. If Jesus says go, what gets us there? Our feet. And just from walking outside, your feet are going to get dirty because of what they're coming into contact with. We are pure and righteous children of God, but we're living in a dirty and a dark world. And just because we're here, we're going to pick up some dust and some residue, and that's okay. Because we get to wash each other's feet. We get to come alongside of each other and be like, hey, let me wash your feet. Let me hold you accountable. You hold me accountable. Let's love each other well. So let's wash each other's feet. Father God, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you are a good and loving Father. I thank you, Jesus, that you have washed not just our feet, but all of us, that we've been baptized in your love, that we've died to ourselves and we get to live resurrection life with you. And I thank you that it's your power that gives us the strength to love each person we come into contact with. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make us one, just as you are one with the Father and with Jesus. I pray that you would make us one. In your name, Jesus, amen.